Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth, episode two. As I told you in yesterday's episode, or last week's episode, I should say, we need to talk about the Bordens a little bit, a little bit of background about the family, the personalities, before we get into the murders. We also need to talk a bit about the city of Fall River. I'll keep that as short as I can. But I need to tell you this stuff to give you a background, to put everything in context. It's really important. Let me start with the city itself. This area, this part of the state, southeastern Massachusetts, right near the Rhode Island border, had been settled in the 1600s. And one of the first families to settle there was the Borden family. And the Borden family grew. And by the time that Andrew Borden died in 1892, there were several hundred Borden descendants in the city. Now, some of the Bordens prospered and some of the Bordens didn't. And over the generations, some of the Borden family members got quite rich. And as the city grew and as the industry, primarily the cotton textile industry, grew and developed in the city, some of the Bordens got in on the ground floor and became very rich. Now, Andrew Borden, who was the murder victim, along with his wife and who was Lizzie's father, was from one of the poorer branches of the family. And when he was born in 1822, Fall River had a population of about 2,000. By the time he died in 1892, the city was about 80,000. So it grew by a factor of 40 over the course of his life. His father was a fishmonger. I don't know if he peddled fish in the streets with a cart or whether he had a storefront. It isn't clear, but they didn't have a lot of money. And Andrew had one sister who survived into adulthood. She married a blacksmith named Hiram Harrington, and they lived in Fall River. And Hiram Harrington plays a small role. He'll come up again, maybe in this episode, but he'll come up again in this podcast. But it was just Andrew and his sister. When Andrew got through school, and he probably dropped out of school in his mid-teens, I don't even think Fall River had a high school when Andrew was 17, 18 years old. When he finished with school, he had to find a job, a career. So he got into finished carpentry or cabinet making. This is high-end carpentry. This is the kind of work where you go in after the building is almost complete and you put in the bureaus and you put in the cabinets and you do the the fine, high-quality carpentry work. This is different from somebody who frames the house or frames the building. This is different from the person that hauls bricks to the site or mixes cement or digs the excavation, you know, excavates this, the cellar. This was more high-end skilled work. He went to work for a local builder, a successful builder named Southard Miller. He worked for him for a few years, and I think he probably picked up quite a bit from working for Miller. I think he probably learned about how to buy and sell real estate, how to choose land, how to think about purchasing land, and to think ahead, to look at where a population is developing, how a city is expanding, what direction is the city going, literally, east, west, south, north. I think he probably learned a little bit of the ins and outs of negotiating, how to buy and sell property. He certainly must have learned about how you put together a construction crew. You need masons. You need the people that do the roofing. You need the plumbers. You've got to bring them all together, coordinate the projects. And he probably, because he was doing this finished carpentry, he was probably in these buildings as they were getting close to completion. And so he was seeing the owners and the architects 
and the project managers coming into these buildings, the city inspectors, to the extent that they had any kind of building codes, and they probably had some basic building codes. He was seeing these people come into the buildings and he was, I'm sure, paying attention and hearing what they had to say and learning some of the subtleties of owning and developing real estate. He was the kind of guy who thought about money all the time. He thought about it from the time he woke up until he fell asleep at night. He was thinking about his investments. He was thinking about how much money he had. He was thinking about how to make more money. He was constantly turning things over in his head and it centered around money. This was what drove him. This is what motivated him. Now, he happened to be in the right place at the right time. He was really lucky. Fall River was booming. And not only was it booming, but it was prospering. And Fall River became the center of the cotton textile industry in the United States. It produced more cotton textiles than any city in the world for a certain amount of time. I don't know whether it was 20 years or 50 years, but it was quite a while. And that was what the city was about. It was about industry. It wasn't a city with a famous university. It didn't have great art museums. People went there to make money. They went there to get a job. And of course, because there were big cotton factories, cotton textile factories, there were other businesses that naturally grew up around it. There was an ironworks. I don't know what kind of iron products they made, but they employed a lot of people. There was a steamship line that ran from New York to Fall River and then up, up to Boston. Fall River was a stop-off point on that steamship line. The railroads ran through Fall River. There was a streetcar company. There were banks. And then there were all the other businesses that any prosperous city is going to have. The big grocery stores, the clothing stores, the ice companies. In those days, you didn't have refrigerators. You had an ice man. You had these big warehouses, these big barns full of ice. They would cut the ice in the winter and they would carry it to these giant barns, bury the ice under piles of sawdust. There were coal companies. People heated their house and cooked with coal and so on and so forth. And all these businesses grew up, the carpenters, the builders, the plumbers. And then there were the professional classes. There were the doctors, the lawyers, the dentists, the architects, the engineers. They moved in, the bankers. There were big banks in the city. There was a lot of money in this city. When Andrew died in 1892, out of the population of approximately 80,000 people, half of those people had been born outside the United States. Most of them were of European descent. There were some Asians, but it was mostly Irish, French, Canadian, Portuguese, and then a smattering of people from other European countries, Italy, Germany, etc. Certainly, there were Im still immigrants from, from England and Wales and Scotland. And there was a tremendous range in terms of the economics of this city. There were very, very wealthy people who had made fortunes in the factories and other businesses. And then there were really poor people, laborers, people who worked in the factories, people who did hard labor, the servants, the people that drove the carts, the people that loaded stuff in warehouses, loaded things onto the rail carts at the depots, rail depots. And they were, to a large degree, immigrants. There was child labor. There were labor laws, but they were routinely ignored. So even though no child under the age of 14 was supposed to work full time, there were kids under that age who did work and nobody reported the companies. No inspectors came in and fined the companies and shut them down. That didn't happen in those days. There were virtually no safety regulations. People worked in hazardous conditions and there were no unions, no labor unions, no collective bargaining. 
So people worked six days a week. They often worked 60, 70 hours a week for low wages. And the poor people lived in appalling conditions. So you had the very rich, you had the very poor, and then you did have a middle class. You had the managers, you had the lawyers, and the people that worked as executives or mid-level managers. You also had people that owned their own small businesses. When Andrew was about 22, 23, he got married for the first time. He married somebody named Sarah Morse, and they had two children who survived, Emma, who was born in 1851, and Lizzie, who was born in 1860. And Emma and Lizzie were both alive when the Bordens were murdered in 1892. They also had another daughter who died as a toddler or an infant, and she was born after Emma and several years before Lizzie. Lizzie's mother died around 1862 or 1863. So at the time that she died, Emma was about 12, 11 or 12, and Lizzie would have been two or three. And Emma would tell the story for years afterwards that as her mother was dying, she said to Emma, please take care of baby Lizzie. Please watch out for her. And Emma took that on. And that was a role that Emma played. And even after Andrew Borden married again, a few years later, to Abby, Emma still played that role to a certain degree with Lizzie. And she always had that relationship with Lizzie to some extent. As far as Andrew's second marriage goes, he met Abby through church. She was a spinster. She was 37. He was 42 when they got married. It looks like it was a marriage of convenience. I don't think there was a lot of romance there. They didn't have any children from that marriage. Think about Andrew. This is a guy who's very careful with his money. He's tight-fisted. He's a widower. He's got an 11 or 12-year-old daughter. He's got a two or three-year-old daughter. He needs somebody to help out. He needs somebody to cook. He needs someone to watch the kids. He needs someone to do the food shopping. Marrying someone is cheaper than hiring a maid and a governess. Now, he may have been affectionate towards her. They seem to have a reasonably happy marriage. They seem to be reasonably compatible. I just don't think that they were ever madly in love. And it was a good deal for Abby in a lot of ways, because if she hadn't married Andrew, she almost certainly would have remained a spinster. I don't believe she had any kind of career. I don't think she worked for a living. I think she lived at home with her father and her stepmother. Her father was middle class at best. He was a tinsmith. He owned his own house, but I don't think he had much else in the way of assets. Around the time that he got married, Andrew also went into business and became a partner in a furniture store with someone named William Almy. And it looks like his father put up the money for Andrew to buy into this business. I'm sure knowing Andrew and seeing how Andrew operated, I'm sure that he learned from his father. And this was not a gift from his father. I think his father said, Andrew, this is an investment. You're going to pay me back. You're either going to pay me a share of the profits or you're going to pay me interest. You're going to pay me back in such a way that I make a profit as well. But it's a sign that Andrew's father, Abraham, had faith in him, believed in him, thought he was going places. And that's why he backed him in this business. Now, this business was successful from the start. And remember, I'll say this again, this was a city that was growing. It was expanding, and especially starting around 1850, because that was when industry was really taking off, not only in the United States, but in Europe. The Industrial Revolution was really gaining some momentum at this time. Factories were buying huge steam engines, steam power plants that were powered by coal. And these huge steam engines would power the the machinery you needed to produce things like cotton textiles. 
So people are moving into the city. They need housing. They need furniture. They need to rent office space if they are professionals or or if it's a bank or if it's a small business. They're going to need a storefront or office space. So Andrew starts making money right away in the furniture business. And one aspect of the furniture business, and this was fairly common in those days, one aspect of Andrew and Mr. Almy's furniture business was that it did some funeral services on the side. Now, they didn't embalm people. They weren't into the mortuary sciences, as far as I know. But what they did was they sold coffins and caskets. In addition to that, they got into some other aspects of the funeral business. In those days, people often had funeral services at their homes. They might not do it at a church for some reason. I don't know why. For instance, when Mr. and Mrs. Borden's funeral was held, it was held at the Borden house on 2nd Street in Fall River, even though both Mr. and Mrs. Borden belonged to churches. At any rate, if you were holding a funeral service and you had 100 people coming, you were going to need to rent chairs. You didn't have enough chairs. There weren't enough in the house. So Borden and and Almy would not only sell you the coffin, but they would rent you the folding chairs. And then you would need to get the coffin down to the graveyard. Borden and Almy had a cart or carriage that would take the coffin down. So you would pay for that. And then you would ride down in one of their carriages so that you could go in some dignified fashion to pay your respects. So he was making money this way as well. And he had the kind of personality that was good for this part of the job. He was tall. He was thin. He was not a happy, smiley, backslapping, jolly guy. That was not who he was. He was serious. He was quiet. He was respectful. He was dignified. He had the personality of your standard, stereotypical funeral home owner. So this was a part of the business that was right up his alley. And because his goal in life was to get ahead, his goal in life was to make money to be financially secure, to build some kind of miniature financial empire, the funeral business was a good way to do it because there's money in funerals. There always has been, there always will be. People are willing to spend money at funerals, for funerals. It's something that for some reason, human beings feel the need to give their beloved relatives a nice send off. And so they'll spend money on a casket. They'll spend money on the services. So he was making a lot of money this way. Now, if you know anybody who owns a small business, if you know somebody pretty well who comes from modest circumstances and they start a business and they work hard and they make a success of it, or along the same line, somebody who starts from modest circumstances and becomes a successful lawyer or doctor, what you often find is that person wants to enjoy the money that he or she is making. They want to live a lifestyle that is pretty close to equal to the amount of money that's coming in. They might be saving some money, but they really want to enjoy what they're earning. So they buy a vacation home. They send their kids to private school. They buy a fancy car. They go on nice vacations. They buy nice clothes. Andrew Borden was not like that. That was not who he was. He was determined to save money and invest it. And that was always the focus for him. When he bought a vacation home, it was a working farm. It was a farm that at worst broke even for him and probably made him some money. This was typical of him. He would not buy a house on the ocean, you know, a nice cottage that was purely used for vacations and nothing else. He would consider that a waste of money. He, he would think that was an appalling waste of money. 
So he would have the benefit of going out to these farms. He owned a couple of farms in a town called Swansea. He'd have the benefit of going out there in the summer. He'd go out. It's a beautiful spot. He's away from the noise and the heat and the congestion of the city. But he's staying on a place that is being managed. He's hired someone to manage it. And they're raising beef cattle and selling those. And they've got hens and they're selling the eggs. And they've got dairy cows and they're growing vegetables and they're growing hay. And and so that was the kind of person he was. Everything he did had to have a payoff or a return. He invested a lot of this money, these profits he was making. He put them into real estate. And I told you at the beginning of this episode that I think he probably learned quite a bit about real estate, about developing it, buying it, how to buy it, what properties to buy, how to put up buildings, how to rent them out, how to furnish them when he was working as a finished carpenter. So he bought mostly commercial property, property that he could rent out to businesses and organizations and professionals. He did buy some residential property, but not a lot. He made so much money doing this that by the time he was in his late 40s, he was ready to sell out of the furniture business. He didn't need to be in the business anymore. He had enough investments between his real estate and some investments he was making in the stock market that he could spend his time managing his little fortune. He didn't need to go into the store anymore and deal with customers. So he and Mr. Almy and a third partner that they had brought on board at some point, Mr. Wood, they settle up. Mr. Almy and Mr. Wood buy him out of the furniture business, but Borden still owns a stake in the building that the furniture business operates out of. So the furniture business owns its own building. Not only does it own the retail space that it uses to sell the furniture, but it also owns a warehouse where it stores the furniture and the warehouse is in back of the retail space. They don't own the entire commercial block. They own a pretty big chunk of it. Mr. Borden retains an ownership interest in that real estate, which makes sense because real estate was his primary form of investment. And presumably, Mr. Almy and Mr. Wood paid Mr. Borden rent either every month or every quarter because Mr. Borden was not the type of person who would retain an ownership interest in real estate and then allow somebody else to use it rent free. By the time he died, he had amassed a fortune of somewhere between $300,000 and $500,000, and that's $1,892. Multiply that by 30. That's a conservative estimate. That means that he was worth somewhere between $9 million and $15 million in today's money when he died. That's a lot of money starting from nothing. This is a time when there were no income taxes, no state income taxes, no federal income taxes, no inheritance taxes. Everything you made, you kept. And this was a lot of money. As his career progresses, he's getting richer and richer, faster and faster. He's getting the reputation of being a good businessman. So in the business community, all the guys that run the banks and run the big textile companies and run the streetcar companies get to know him and they respect him and they start to bring him on to the various directorships. He becomes a director of banks. He becomes a director of some of these textile companies. He meets every so often with the other directors and they talk about the company and they talk about, are they happy with the way it's being managed? Do they need to replace the management? What kind of dividends are they going to pay on the stock? That kind of thing. I think these types of positions also would pay him something. They would pay him money every quarter or every year, and he would get the equivalent 
in today's money of maybe fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year for each one of these directorships. So that was another source of income for him. One of the ways he saved money over the years was that he lived with his father in his father's house after he was married and as he started this family. When the family got too big and they had to move, they moved down the street into another house that the family had purchased, that either he had purchased with his father's help or that his father had purchased and he was renting it. It's not really clear, but this allowed him to live really cheaply. When he's 50 years old in 1872, he's been bought out of the furniture business. He's already retired. He decides to move, get a little more space, a little more independence from his father. So he buys a house on 2nd Street, 92 2nd Street in Fall River. That's maybe a mile, mile and a half from where his father lives. It's a busy street. It's a commercial, heavily traveled commercial street. There's some heavy traffic. There's some big wagons carrying heavy merchandise pulled by teams of two or four or even six horses rattling up and down those streets. There's regular traffic. There are people in their own private carriages and buggies going up and down the street. There's a lot of foot traffic. And there are both residences in that neighborhood, and there are also commercial businesses, what we would call a mixed-use neighborhood. Even though his house was surrounded by other houses and they all had yards, there were businesses in all different directions that were within a few hundred feet. There was a Chinese laundry. There was a restaurant, a paint store, a livery stable where people boarded their horses or they rented horses for the day or the week and they rented carriages. Think of it as a car rental agency only from the 1800s with horses. And there was an undertaker's business down the street. So it was this type of neighborhood where you had houses and businesses all mixed together. And this was in the era before they really had zoning. Nowadays, zoning laws and and zoning ordinances in cities tend to be pretty strict. It's pretty difficult to get a zoning variance, but in those days it was the Wild West and you did whatever you wanted. You put up any kind of business you wanted anywhere that you felt like. This house was the house he lived in for the next 20 years. This was the house that he died in. This was where he was murdered. And we'll talk about the house some more. The next episode, we're going to talk about his reputation with money. We're going to talk about how he viewed money, how he handled money and how that translated into his everyday life. And we're going to talk a little more about his personality. So we'll get to the Borden murders. Hang in there. The Borden murders are the most interesting aspect of this case. There's no question. But I do need to talk about him. I need to talk about the other family members. You need to have that information and that background to make any sense of what happened in terms of the murders and what happened in terms of the investigation and the subsequent trial. So... Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate you listening as always. And till next week, take care.